0: Several weeks ago, we began looking at the cross, the place where Jesus died, and trying to discern some of the insights from the cross. You know, in Christian history, the symbol of the cross has had lots of different meanings to it, it's had a very complex history. Certainly, in the days of Jesus, the cross was a symbol of what in his day? What was it a symbol of? Shame and disgrace. What else? Shame and disgrace, certainly. Punishment. It was the sign of Roman authority. Cross was the symbol that Rome had been ruling. It was the way they put people to death. However, a few centuries later, during the time of Constantine the emperor, that famous emperor who made the first Sunday law the symbol of the cross underwent a major transformation supposedly constantine had a, a vision and in that vision he heard the words in this sign you will conquer and he saw a picture of the cross and he did conquer he conquered the um, rest of the roman empire became the sole empire emperor of rome and made the cross a symbol of prestige we're now Christianity became the main focal part, the main religion in Christianity. A sign of punishment, uh, a sign of conquering, and yet also oftentimes a sign is a symbol of compassion. You know, we think of individuals, uh, many hospitals, there might be a sign of the cross or, or people do things in the name of the cross, but the cross has had a complex history. It's been used as a a symbol for persecution during the times of the Inquisition, during the time of the Crusades, where people were forced to worship. It's been used uh, in the pogroms against the Jews. Again, a symbol of force and persecution. But What does the cross mean to us today? How do we understand the death of Jesus in relation to our Christian experience? And so as we've looked at the cross, as we've looked at different aspects of it, we looked first at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we saw that what takes place there reveals reveals God to us. It's the power of God revealed at the cross. We also saw that the cross is the place where God's covenant comes to fruition. Jesus himself said that this is the blood of the new covenant, where he's able to bring us into a harmonious body of people. A few weeks back, we looked at the cross as a place of reconciliation where we can come to God realizing that God is not counting our trespasses against us. I'm glad I got an amen out of that. So let's turn back to 2 Corinthians 5, which is where we were last few weeks back. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And what I want to look at this morning, I want to kind of raise a thorny issue with you this morning. I hope that's okay. I hope um, that the cold has stimulated your brain cells and you're ready to think with me. Uh, sometimes heat makes us a little sleepy, right? So turn the temperature down, Franklin. No, just, just kidding. Um, the cross can also be difficult for our day and our culture. And it's very common. There's a lot of Christian writers today that actually question the, what let me call the traditional understanding of what took place when Jesus died. And there's lots of reasons for this. For example, if you think about it for, for a moment, um, the cross wrongly understood can miscommunicate certain things. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, we sing there's power in the blood, right? But how many of us like getting involved with blood? I know that a lot of you are medical, but the rest of us, you know, blood is no. If there's blood, there's this revulsion. What would it really have been like at the crucifixion? Would we be singing? Yeah, there's power in the blood. Standing in front of the cross, I think not. My cousin, um, who's not a Christian, most of you know that I grew up in a Jewish family, and he and I over the years have written back and forth over different topics. And a few years ago, he wrote me a story, which some of you might have heard. It's roughly told. It's a story about a man who works at a, a train yard, and his job is to make sure the trains are on the right tracks and his son came with him to work one day, and his son, unbeknownst to the man, toddled out of the shack that he was in, and went down, and he was on the tracks. Some of you might have heard this story, and lo and behold, there's a train coming down the tracks, and the man sees, as the story goes, his son on the tracks, and he realizes the train is headed right for his son, and he can turn the tracks, or he can let his son be killed. And he chooses to save the people on the train, And sacrifice his son. And that's often used as an illustration of what happened on the cross. My cousin wrote that to me and said, this is barbaric. I happen to agree with him. That illustration is greatly flawed. Why? Well, certainly someone is dying for someone else. But it almost looks, in in the story it's true, that this son is just an unknowing, uninvolved victim. That is not what took place at the cross. So let's look here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting, I'm just going to jump back real quickly and we're going to get to our main verse. But in verse 18, 2 Corinthians 5, 18, Paul says, Now all these things, I'm reading from the New American Standard, all these things are from God. The King James says all things are from God. All these things, talking about the plan of salvation. From God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19. To it, or namely, that what? God was where? In Christ, reconciling the world to himself. It's an important point here that I want to stress. And again, I appreciate it being brought out in the song, Spencer. You know, many of us have this difficult concept with the death of Christ. We ask the question, you know, if God told us to turn the other cheek, how come God doesn't just turn the other cheek? And God told us, if somebody slaps you, just turn around and just forgive them. Why the necessity for the death of Jesus on the cross? Is it just some kind of an accident like my cousin's story where the train's coming? Oh, someone's got to die. Better the son than the people on the train. That's really not what's taking place at all. So let's kind of think through this this morning. Um, And let's go back down to verse 20 and then 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, we beseech you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God has already reconciled Himself to us. The passage already says that God is not counting our trespasses against us. Amen. He has canceled them. We have to emphasize that over and over and over again. God is not holding things against us. But how does He deal with the problem of sin? Verse 21. I felt, and we went over this passage last time, I didn't really do justice to verse 21, and I don't believe I'll do justice to it this morning, but we're going to look at it at least. Verse 21, he made him. Well, let's figure out some of those pronouns. Who's the he and who's the him? God made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So let's kind of just pull this verse apart. Let's chew on it a little bit. First of all, first thing I want you to realize, and I want you to try to grasp this with me, is that there are not really three parties involved. Now the verse kind of looks like that, and I'll explain what I mean in a minute. If we just look at it, and too often when we communicate this with people, we do have three parties. There's God, he hath made him, and then there, that's Christ, and then who else is a third party? There's us. So we kind of think about it in this three-fold exchange. The danger with that is we misunderstand the relationship between God and Christ. Sometimes we think that Christ is the one that's trying to pacify the Father. And okay, here, I'll take it, God. Don't let it fall on them. I'll be the good guy and you can vent all your wrath on me as a lightning rod, and then they can go free. Or, sometimes we look at it in that story illustration, as the father, okay, he's going to do this, he's going to save humanity, but the way he's going to do it, he's just going to pour everything out on his son. But I want you to think for a moment, instead of being three parties engaged, three participants in this transaction, there's really two. There's us. And there's who else? There's God in Christ. That's what Paul tells us earlier. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now, what am I saying? What am I not saying? I'm not saying that God and Christ are not separate. Of course, there's the Godhead. But that's the point. Jesus is fully God and what? Fully man. And it's God in Christ or God with Christ together as one party in the transaction working out salvation for humanity. He has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So this is really important for us. Because sometimes people criticize this idea of the cross and they say, well, you know, this is just an excuse for... Child abuse. Here's this father that's beating on this innocent kid, or this is a, a sign that you have a, you know, a sadist. That's the father, and a masochist. That's the son, and they're going at it. And we're the aside beneficiaries. Whoa, sorry. Those ideas are patently false. They do not represent in the least what's really happening at the cross. What's happening? God is showing us his great love for us through Christ. John 3.16 says what? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But John chapter 10 in verse 17 says, John 10, 17, Jesus said, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. There's the Father giving, and there's the Son giving. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. We'll come right back here to 2 Corinthians in a moment. Well, Let's go to Galatians, just uh, the next book after 2 Corinthians, Galatians chapter 1, in verse 3 and four, and five. Galatians 1, 3, 4, and 5. Grace to you and peace from who? God our Father and And the Lord Jesus Christ. One party, the Father and Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forever, um, for, excuse me, forevermore. Amen. Do you see it? One party, the Father and the Son, together in the plan of salvation. Jesus delivering himself according to the will of God. Incidentally, um, there's many people today questioning whether Jesus really is fully God. If he isn't, then you do have three parties at the cross. And then you do have a horrendous picture of what's taking place. But here's the Father and the Son together, thinking of how they can reconcile who? You and me. Two parties at the cross. So let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, in addition to the song that Spencer sang this morning, um, Charles Wesley wrote a hymn called Amazing Love. You know that, right? If I was somebody like Naomi, I would just start breaking into song right now, but I'm not. But you know, Amazing Love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Now, the scripture never clearly says God died for us, but it does say God was in Christ. Reconciling the world to himself. Very important thought for us. So let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You're probably already there. Verse 21, he hath made him, father and the son, together. And then it describes something particular about the son. What does it describe about him? He knew no sin. And in the in original language, actually that phrase is in the first part of the sentence. It's there in a point of emphasis for us. Christ was totally separate from sin. Today in our Bible study earlier this morning, in our class anyway, we were talking about the power of the tongue and the words that we speak. Anyone else have a study on that? Have you said anything this week that you shouldn't have said? Oh, eyebrows went up right there first. Yeah. You know, somebody this morning said, well, it was actually this morning that I said something I shouldn't have said. We speak, we act, we think in all sorts of ways in which we shouldn't. In him, there was no sin. He knew no sin. That's really almost incomprehensible for us. Except for the last part of the verse, he wants to make us his righteousness. But there's this transformation, the one that was completely perfect, the only one who had never sinned, who had never said anything with his mouth that he later regretted. Could you imagine that? Never once having to, like, I really shouldn't have said that. Oh, I lost my temper there. He hath made him, God made him, who knew no sin the only one who has a complete, full character that was totally in harmony with everything that God's law brings out and everything that God's great desire is. But he made him to be something for us. What did he make him to be? He made him to be sin for us. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I ask the question, what does that mean? Okay, I can grasp the part, he knew no sin. So he lived a spotless life. He was holy. He was was without sin. He never followed the devil. You know, in John chapter 8, in verse 46, he even tells to the people that are trying to trap him, which one of you convicts me of sin? They're on his track all his life, but there was nothing ever there. I understand that. He was free from sin. But what does it mean God made him to be sin for us? What do you think? He came into our humanity, took our fallen nature, Romans 8.3. Okay, well, that's an interesting. Metaphorically, he was made sin. It's a pretty strong metaphor. Uh What's the point of the metaphor? Took our guilt. That's certainly part of it. Okay, so he reveals what, where sin leads us, what sin is. He reveals how God relates to sin. There's a few places in scripture where it talks about Christ being made things for us. Isaiah chapter 53, where he laid on him the iniquity of us all. In prayer meeting this week, incidentally, great prayer meeting this week, Richard was leading out talking about Gethsemane, where Jesus really is beginning in the Gospel of Luke that he's entering into the power of darkness. Something tremendous is taking place there at the cross. God made him to be sin for us. Actually, the Greek doesn't say to be sin as it's highlighted up there. The Greek just says, he hath made him sin for us. You supply the verb. He was considered sin. God related to him as sin. He was made to be sin. Keith? So there's an identification there, just like there was the serpent in the wilderness. Sin was crucified. I like that. Uh, let's turn to Galatians chapter 3, the verse that you're referring to. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And again, those people that transgress the law, they get the curse in the context of the chapter. Um, Not that the law is a curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become, or he was made a curse for us. Same phrase in the original language. He was made sin for us. He is also made A curse for us. And then it goes on to say, um, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 21. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. What's very clear here, and There's lots of questions or things that may not be clear, but what is clear is that there is a transaction taking place. There is a substitution taking place. We are sinners. We have participated in sin. He knew no sin, but God treated him how? Like God should treat us. The book Desire of Ages, great book on the life of Christ. Uh, Let me see if I can find the... Quotation for you. It says Christ was treated as we deserve, that we might be treated as he deserves. He was condemned for our sins, in which he had no share. He knew no sin, but he was made sin for us. He was condemned for our sins, in which he had no share, that we might be justified by his righteousness, in which we had. No share. Do you get the point? He knew no sin, but was made sin. We know no righteousness, but we get to share in his righteousness. And that's what Paul says. Let's go back to the text there, 2 Corinthians 5 again. Um, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, on our behalf for us. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, on our behalf. Here's this idea of substitution once again. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's a question, you know, as we've been kind of doing this, looking at the cross, I've been also trying to relate what these lessons tell us, and try to connect it with evangelism. So, you know, the cross reveals God's love. We should be revealing God's love to others. The cross is the place where reconciliation takes place. We should be agents of reconciliation to others as well. What does this verse tell us in how we should relate to other people? That here, Christ, who was completely innocent, became guilty, was treated as guilty, became guilty? Maybe that's a stretch, I'm not sure. He certainly was God, and related to him as though he were guilty. All the guilt of the world came upon him. He felt it to the depths of his being that he might save us. Would that impact how I relate to other people who may not know what I know, who may not have the understanding of God that you and I have, I think it should give us this sense of compassion and grace, realizing I have no righteousness of my own. Just as Christ had no sin, I have no righteousness. But praise God, there is a complete exchange he takes all of my guilt, all of my sin, who I am in my weakness, in my depth, in my sinfulness, in my filthiness, and my brokenness, and he makes me completely whole. And that's what he wants to do for everybody. And if we ever think, well, you know, I'm a little better than you, we just need to come right back to the cross. Now, earlier I asked the question, And it's a question that people ask. God tells us just to turn the other cheek. How come God doesn't just turn the other cheek? Well, this verse and this experience of Christ tells us something about sin. And that is that we have no idea what it's really like. We have no idea of the depth of sin. We have no concept of the the enormity of the sin, and what sin does to us and the we have no concept of God's holy love and holy wrath against. and we are so accustomed to sin that we need to spend hours at the cross, realizing that even when His own son became sin, God just couldn't wink at it. God just couldn't say, well, that's okay, I'll let you slide. Any parents ever did that to your kids before? Of course. But God could not, would not at the cross. Right? How, again, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, this whole idea of Lucifer's desire to overthrow, but it didn't bring peace or happiness to the universe. You know, the proud heart strives to earn salvation. But to come to the point where we realize that all we have innately is sin, is terribly humbling. Well, not terribly humbling, wonderfully humbling. That all we have in and of ourself, we have no righteousness. But praise God, God has made an exchange. That Another hymn, uh, Rock of Ages. Uh, Augustus, top lady, Rock of Ages. You know, Clef for me, we know that song again. I could break into song again if I was Naomi. Um, Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply, what? To the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior or I die. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for me. That I could be made the righteousness of God in him. I don't have to pretend. I don't have to make believe I'm something I'm not. The other day, Kim Busel and I were talking in my office um, about the human condition of not wanting to admit that we need help. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You know, so like if I need something, I need to borrow Richard's truck, I'm going to figure out another way to do it rather than just asking Richard, can I borrow your truck? Why? I mean, Richard's my friend. Of course he'll let me his truck, right? Anytime. <laughs> but we, we don't want to really come to the point where we're vulnerable with people. Uh, Kim and I were talking about this in relation to fundraising, you know, to go to a donor and say, look, I really need your help. Oh, man, I'd rather, uh, I'd rather do it on my own. Our great need is the thing God wants to fulfill. And our human pride tries to cover up that need with all sorts of things. But let's be honest, brothers and sisters. Everyone that's here this morning is in great need. Our clothes may look good, but we are in great need. We may look clean, but we're really very filthy. We're broken, we're shattered, we're in tremendous need. But praise God, God fulfills that need. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for you. Sin for the person you're meeting with. Sin for the person you're talking to. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What an exchange. What an exchange. You know, it should make our hearts sing and our soul dance, if I can say it that way, this news. What an exchange. So what will it be, friends? Do you want to be made the righteousness of God in him? That's what God offers for us. That's what he's giving to us. And when we come to the cross, one of the clear things of the cross is, again, there's two parties. There's God in Christ thinking what they can do to rescue humanity. And then there's us in great need. But what an exchange. The question for us is, will we respond to that exchange? Will we be willing to lay aside the facade of our own self-righteousness, lay aside the facade of our uh, self-independence and say, I'm so glad there's a place I can come. Naked, I come to you for dress. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I claim." Is that your desire, friends? Just to come to that cross and to see God and Christ together, thinking, what can I do to rescue me? I'd like to read a quotation in closing. It's from a little book called The Faith I Live By. It's a daily devotional. Um, you know, the exchange has been made. The question for us this morning is, will you accept, will I accept my position in Christ? Will I allow him to make me the righteousness of God in him. Faith I Live By, page 113, says this. We are not to be anxious about what God, excuse me, about what Christ and God think of us. Not to be what? Anxious about what Christ and God think about us. But what, uh, about what, excuse me, I'll let me read it all over. We are not to be anxious about what Christ and God think of us, but about what God thinks of Christ, our substitute. And the cross points out distinctly that we have a substitute. He was made under the law. He was made a curse. He was made to be sin. He is my substitute. Is he yours? Do you know him? Is his righteousness being fulfilled in your life today, can lay aside the anxiety, God, what are you thinking about me? How am I doing? What's my performance? And simply think about what God thinks of Jesus Christ, our substitute. Let's pray together. Father, we look forward to that day when faith will turn to sight and we will be around your throne giving all glory and honor and praise to you. Father we're grateful that we can begin that experience anew this morning today as we come to the cross of Jesus Christ We pray father that that what takes place there would have an impact in our hearts and lives that our pride would be broken down that our self-righteousness would be destroyed that we would come humbly to the foot of that cross and find all that we need. Thank you, Father, for your incomprehensible love. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse,